The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My good friend, Mark Halpern, is here today. Mark is a best-selling author, along with another mutual friend, John Heileman of Game Change. And what's the name of the second book again? It's fine. You don't know what we've done. Why don't you just say I'm a... Yeah, I can say I just said I shouldn't even bother. You shouldn't try to pretend you're familiar with my oeuvre. I, I mean, I could... I really. Cha- I, let me introduce myself. Game Change, Double Down, the host of With All Due Respect on Bloomberg Television and MSNBC, a frequent guest on Morning Joe, the most frequent guest in the history of the Charlie Rose program, and now the executive producer and co-host of The Circus on Showtime. Much better for me to do it because I'm actually familiar with what I do. Well, that's fantastic. Well, yeah, it, yeah. it's true. And, and I think you've just actually, in a way, encapsulated everything we're going to want to talk about. Okay, good. You basically have reduced the entire podcast from an hour to 30 I, seconds. I can't stand listening to myself be introduced. I short-circuited the process. Yeah, you cut right through I it. Find what, it tedious. What, what part of it? I just heard it. It's just tedious. You just did the Bob Dylan thing. You know, Dylan gave people the, the way that they're supposed to in, introduce him after he heard it. Uh, somewhere it was like this great incredible thing that we'll put in the in the show notes mark okay. thanks for being here sure let's dive right in i love the circus as you know it was a sort of a lead-in once removed to this first season of billions and it was really fun you know it made the sunday night great i could watch you guys and i really thought it was the best deconstruction of the political process that i've ever seen on television and uh congratulations on the on the great success it's had thank you now Let's just dive into, there's a lot that I I want to get to about point of view and how you see your responsibility. But I I want to start much earlier. When you you were growing up, how did you think about what you wanted to do with your life? Do you remember when you first sort of had all this as an idea? You know, in 10th grade, what did you think would happen? I thought I would be a corporate lawyer or diplomat dealing with U.S.-Japanese relations. Why? Um, my father dealt with U.S.-Japanese relations in the government. I took Japanese language in high school. Uh, when I was in high school, Japan uh, was uh, a very dominant economic force, not as much cultural force as it is now, but it was a big economic force. And um, I was really interested in Japan and liked Japanese food and wanted to sort of follow in my father's footsteps, either doing commerce or diplomacy between the two countries. And why did you decide to be a journalist and not a policy person or State Department person? Uh, I graduated from college and I started to work at ABC News answering the telephones and rolling telexes. We put that in the show notes, explain what that is. And I loved it. This was pre-internet, pre-CNN existed, but there was not like a culture of cable news, 24-7 cable news. And, you know, back then, if unless you worked in a news organization, you didn't have access to the Associated Press wire. Sure. So this was January of 1988. It was a very competitive presidential race. President Reagan leaving office, open seat, 13 candidates, a very big field. I think the biggest field until this cycle. And I just, I couldn't have loved it more. And so I never left the business. It's quite a big shift though, from someone who wants to be on the inside, you know, shaping to going to the outside, observing. It is. And- it is. And I never did journalism before I started at ABC at the yeah, you, lowest you, level. You've so, often said to me, I never wrote for the Crimson. Yeah. I never did any of that in college. I just, I, you know, I believe that there are two responsibilities of journalism. One is to hold powerful interests accountable to the public interest. And that's all powerful interests, not just interests on the right or the left, but all powerful interests. And the other is to tell the stories of our time in as interesting a way as possible. 
And it just turns out that those are the two things that kind of match my professional ethos much more than anything else. I have a great fidelity to the public interest and I love telling stories. I, I learned that I'm less uh, suited to work for a corporation or a government than I am for the public interest as a journalist. And I, I know a lot of people who do those things and I respect what they do, but man, I couldn't do it. Why? You know, after 9-11, as horrible as that was, and I, I started my, I started September 11th in New York and I flew before the attacks to DC. So I was, I think one of a handful of people who was actually in both cities on that day and I was, like all New Yorkers and all Americans, incredibly moved by and outraged by what happened. At the same time, I said in the wake of 9-11, when the Bush administration started doing certain things, this is a time when we have to protect individual liberty. Governments lie at times like this, and we all need to be on guard. And I got extraordinary sort of attack for that. But that is, that is a moment in which my certainty that I'm doing the profession for which I am best suited came out because it's not unpatriotic to say governments lie during times of war. It's just factual. It, it makes you more patriotic to try to hold the government accountable even during such a time. So I'm just, I'm not suited to work for the government and be part of a culture of rallying around government for the sake of government or individuals. I, I could never work for a senator or a presidential candidate. I just don't have the impulse to be for someone no matter what they do. Because the your your natural skepticism, Skeptic cynicism. It's not cynicism. Right. I, I'm yeah. extremely idealistic. It's skepticism that one person is always right. The public interest is kind of a North Star. It's always there. Well, did you hold yourself out, do you think, as an outsider when you were young? In other words, were you observing and noting people with influence, you know, the football coach at high school or the principal? Were you able to sort of dive in and join or were you always sort of chronicling for yourself? What, when what was I was happening? four years old, the president of the United States authorized a wiretap on my home phone. Because of your dad's Because my position. dad worked in the government. And he, he was part of a widespread targeting of people in the government and journalists to try to identify who was leaking government secrets. So that made me kind of skeptical of government sure. power and a little bit of an outsider. Um, sure. I, I definitely have the mentality of an outsider for all sorts of reasons. I grew up in the suburbs and kind of now I'm a total urban creature. I don't know exactly all the, all the reasons why I have the mentality, but I definitely do. Definitely feel like the responsibility to protect, again, the less powerful interests in our society from the more powerful interests because pe more powerful interests will always seek to exploit and uh, less powerful interests and to accumulate more power. But did you come, did you come to that right away? Like you, so you get this first job. Dr. Compliment, I know we only have an hour. The excitement. So. Yeah, no, no, no. Did you come to it? Because look, I think I this is really, this is all relevant. I like that we yeah. got there quickly. It usually takes about a half hour for to the guest. To the uh, yeah. For the guest to say, uh, this is, is this a, a psychiatric yeah. session? So this was quick. But why I think it's significant is be, because of the way in which you do your job now and the way in which you balance these various interests. Um, you know, the fact that you're able to both move within circles of power very comfortably and then also have to hold these people to account. I, I, I find watching you, it's fascinating. So living it must be really fascinating and it must be rooted in some core belief and, and I guess what I'm wondering is when you first got that job, like I could see in 88, of course, what a super exciting time. You know, you and I graduated within a year of one another from, from college. 
Mine was the scrappier one 10 minutes away. But we came in, they absolutely came into a world where with a, a lot of excitement and you and that business. But was, did this idea of holding feet to the fire and trying to get to the truth sort of blossom right away for you when you when you started? My mentor for the most of the early part of my career was Peter Jennings, the late sure. ABC News yeah. anchor. And Peter was my role model as a broadcaster, as a newsroom leader, as a person balancing doing journalism that was interesting with journalism that was important. But he also was my role model in the exact area you're talking about. Peter Jennings is one of the most famous journalists of the history of American journalism, really, because of his power as one of the evening news anchors. And one of the problems he had as a working journalist by the time I started working with him was he was so sure. famous. We, we'd go out and cover presidential candidates in Iowa and New Hampshire, and Peter would be significantly more famous than the, most of the candidates we were covering. And so people would want to pose for pictures with him and talk to him. And he would, you know, he was invited to, you know, state dinners and, and new heads of state in the Middle East and elsewhere. And yet he had the mentality of a scrappy journalist who believed you had to hold all powerful interests accountable to the public interest. And so to watch someone whose achievements uh, as a journalist are, you know, far greater than I will ever achieve, just by definition, the guy was one of the- He was a true giant. Yeah. You know, he had, he had millions of viewers a night. To watch someone like that, so famous and powerful, and yet constantly questioning government, constantly questioning officials in business and government who he socialized with, and who would have considered him friends and been at times I saw it horrified that he was doing aggressive journalism often at their expense as a great role model for me. And like I said, I'll never be as famous as Peter or as influential a journalist as Peter, but the fact that he could keep the mentality at the heights that he reached permanently imprinted on me sure. and my, and my sensibility about how to balance those two things. So with this idea, this ideal in a way, holding such primacy for you of holding people accountable, the powerful for the less powerful. Mm -hmm. When you get as a famous journalist often do, when, when, when you get criticized for being an apologist for one side or another, does it strike deeply within you because it's so exactly the opposite of what your intentions are? I can't stand it, but my reaction to it is not nearly as emotional or visceral as it once was just because I'm a nerd to it. But it makes me crazy. The people who know me best couldn't tell you what my politics are. The people who don't know me, if they're liberals, think I'm conservative. If they're conservatives, think I'm liberal. But I don't like the way things have gone for our media in general. And I feel at times like one of a few people trying to have things be more traditional the way they should be. Define traditional. Journalists who put their own opinions to the extent they have them aside and hold all powerful interests accountable to the public interest and listen to criticism of critics who say traditional news organizations are almost entirely liberally biased and don't just dismiss that and say, oh, of course we're not, but look at empirically whether that's true based on their own experience and statistics. And what I say to liberals who don't believe that or journalists who are in denial is accept the fact that about half the country thinks it's true. So even if you don't think it's true, which it is, but even if you don't think it's true, recognize it out of a commercial sense of survival and as an obligation to want to have everyone think you're fair, you should say, well, why, do ha why does half the country think the media is liberally biased? You know, why is that? Is it, is they just making it up? Are they overly sensitive? Well, it or might there be something it to it? Well, I would ask you, does it depend how you define media? 
Because talk radio is absolutely biased the other way. Well, of course, as is Fox News. I'm talking about supposedly neutral organizations that have wide reach. You're talking about the New York Times and, and ABC and CNN. News and Newsweek and but, Time. But basically, yeah. CNN, Prezucker, and the New York Times largely, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, uh, but do you think the Times For a says, Republican attorney general, I give you a thousand examples. Go ahead. It's been on my do. mind this week. If a Republican attorney general were investigating the Republican nominee for president in a criminal investigation, you think the press would ask a lot of questions about why there's no independent counsel? Think they would? I think they would. Do you feel but that? But they know Loretta Lynch. They've socialized with her. They trust her. So there's no reason for an independent case. Wait, though, this gets right to the heart of the question I, I yeah. was asking you earlier, and the thing yeah. you said about Jennings, because the, the implication there when you say that they've socialized, yeah. I mean, you're friends with a lot of these people, or you're friendly with a lot of these people, yeah. yet you would assert you can cover them objectively. I would. Some of them have you on speed dial. Some of them have done you favors, not bad favors. They've sat within for interviews with you. or they've yeah. I don't consider that a favor, but I can just tell you, I've worked in newsrooms my whole career. I can tell you they're liberally biased. They don't know it, but they are. It's not the only bias. Yet the memo you wrote was actually the other way, right? The memo that you wrote. What memo? The Carrie Bush thing. That that was accused of being uh, liberally biased, but it wasn't. Yes. It was the opposite. It's one of the great ironies of the many times I've been savagely attacked. What now? It's one of the great ironies of the many times I've been savagely attacked. Because I wrote a memo that said we should be fair. We shouldn't be liberally biased. Or conservatively biased. In the case, the time I wrote the memo, George Bush's campaign was was being more egregious in how they were conducting himself than the Kerry campaign. And I said we were responsible for pointing that out and not just doing he said, she said. That doesn't mean that that was that that means there's no liberal bias at that moment. It just means at that moment there was another bias that was more powerful: the bias of laziness and false equivalency. Look, you and I had dinner the other night, and I started grilling you about what your obligation is to really confront, not just question some of these pals. And you made the point in a really convincing way to me that it's much more important to be really sure that you're, you said the bar is very high. It's a two party system. And for me to treat one of those candidates of the, who've gotten to the top of the two party system as less than, would require something so out- egregious on their part. They, they would have to be so outside the bounds of acceptable for me to break for me to break through that. And I'm, and then I think about that. What happened in the shadow of you writing that memo, which was purporting to, to trying to say, let's really be aware of the differences in these candidates. And I'm just wondering how much of your current view is a reaction to. Mm-hmm. I've reinforced the view I had before. The press is. I think one of the most underperforming parts of our society. I think, I think lawyers, doctors, car salesmen, NBA players, I think they all are excellent. And I think American journalism is nowhere near as excellent as it could be or should be in a lot of ways, including holding powerful interests accountable to the public interest without regard to ideology. So liberal bias gets in the way, but so does laziness under, underfunding. Uh, other biases, conflict bias. I mean, you look at the amount of coverage gaffes get or Trump tweet gets. I mean, it's, it is disgusting the extent to which trivial things crowd out important things because the press is interested in them. 
and sort of convinces itself, well, of course, people are interested in the firing of the deputy campaign manager or whether the graphic on the tweet was produced, whatever. And so I'm a big critic of how we do, but the media in other countries isn't much better. In some cases, it's it's worse. And it's not like this is a new thing. There's been trivial stuff in American political journalism forever. But how do you how do you decide what's trivial? In other words, so the thing you just referenced, Does it affect where that image, the thing you just mentioned, yeah. right? Where that image yeah. came from, the sheriff's badge. Yeah, that's important. I'm not saying that it's I'm mean. saying, it I'm doesn't saying that, that's doesn't meaningless. That ma- does it matter or it doesn't matter? It does. I'm asking, does it or does it? I mean, it's easy to say it speaks, you're easy to Mark. say it speaks to like character, and I'm not saying it doesn't. But what I'm saying is, does it clothe a single child, feed a single hungry person? You know, the ability to tell interesting stories that actually affect the real lives of real people it's difficult to do that, but but you can you can you can cover an endless loop, the foibles of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and never get to what kind of things that actually reflect what kind of presidency would be in a fundamental way. Isn't part of the job deciding though what which are just fo- your job deciding which are merely foibles and which are merely oh that speaks to character and wi- let's say for a second, is it part of your job? It's a question. Is it part of your job to decide to try to divine whether or not the thing that played out let's yesterday we're recording this on july 4th so the thing that played out two days ago um was dog whistle intentional to again i'm asking you to say whether it was or not but is it important for you to figure out whether that was designed to appeal to white supremacists to once again say to them i'm with you before changing it is this idea of the dog whistle something that matters and then if it is is it something that you ought to be wasting your time is in your mind is it wasting your time chasing that down or is it in fact sort of an essential thing to understand about the the campaign it is and that that's why it's not the best example of uh of something trivial it's only it's only trivial in the sense that like there are other ways to get at Donald Trump's character than four days of coverage of a single tweet. But I don't, I don't, yes. I think that this, this particular tweet is of important to look at and analyze and ask him about without a doubt. So again, it's not the best example. I can give you other examples of trivial things like, you know, where were the Trump stakes bought that he displayed at a press conference? I, I agreed. Who cares about that? I, yeah. I agree with you. I'm trying to do gotcha politics with him about, uh, whether a tie was was made in China is I I understand that right. Oh, well, it's, that I actually think is significant. Oh, you do? Yeah. Did you? Why did you ask him about the tie? No, I just don't think you can go around talking about the horrors of manufacturing overseas and then do all your manufacturing overseas. Sure, all your manufacturing questions. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah. But the I love American made ties. By the way, is that all you wear? That's all I wear. Just you won't wear any that are made America anywhere first. else. I'm going to check from now on. Yeah. Okay, but you talk about the modern political. Oh, I buy them also in Europe and from Europe and Asia. Good. You. T- but nothing, <laughs> no ties from Latin America, Antarctica. When what's the etiquette on checking email during the podcast? I wasn't. No, I was going to. I was going. You're going to now check. You and Baron Davis are the only people to ever check Who's email. Baron Davis, mm. the only people to ever check email during a podcast. But you're not going to want to during this question, which I'm listening. is, you know what? I, does I've proven it that I can listen. Bother you that you don't get more credit for basically inventing modern political coverage with the note. Does it bother that I don't get more credit? Yeah, for basically inventing. And and then how do you feel about the fact, uh, if you don't like this kind of coverage, I do believe you invented it with the note. Yeah. How do you speak to that? Ah, uh, those uh, big questions. Yeah, sure, it's a big question, because you don't want to be bored. Um, I, I get plenty of credit. The, thing, the only thing that bothers me is when there are people I help in their careers who then attack me on social media. That's really the only thing that bothers me in that category, my career. 
is, is you mean people you brought along who you yeah. feel even if i only brought them along like they called me up and asked me for career advice but all right i'm going back to the note yeah i'm gonna do this the way saying, you would do it i'm gonna i'm gonna do what i wish you would do the note even the, when you know here's here's the thing if i tweet a picture of a really good looking donut and then so, this is responsive i promise and then someone respi- replies tweets and says hashtag journalism as if all I do is tweet <laughs> pictures of donuts. Well, I get it. If I were being paid as a journalist and all I did, I mean, the note was, I agree. It was insidery. It was process-oriented. It was personality. It didn't clothe a single child. But that's not all I do. Yeah, but I'm asking something else, which is, right, yeah. you when did. You, you when, said, I invented that sort of journalism and did I want to go to prison for No, it? I said, do you, feel, uh, do you feel yeah. that, one, you don't get enough credit for and having. And I answered that, I get plenty uh, of credit. Done it. And, and two. Yeah. Look, that thing was like, yes, insider jargon. It was, I remember you to list like uh, the schedules of where the piles were going to be for the, you know, I loved it. I read it uh, constantly. In fact, I got it on the hot list at Entertainment Weekly because a buddy of mine was there and you were going to buy me drinks, but that never we'd never met. And uh, you emailed saying, hey, I'll get you drinks sometime, which I think now we've, we're square. Oh, you're that Brian compliment. There you oh, go. We're God. square now. So confusing. Common name. Uh, it's true. We're and square now, now on, on that. the West Side, it's like John Smith. <laughs> See, now the jokes are flying and the audiences, they've just woken up. But um, in three, much the same three, way, two, in much one. the same way. No, yeah. it's a podcast. I'm fine if I take a second and think of the right question. Oh, no. I don't feel I need to fill the space. Rush We're Limbaugh. not on Morning Rush Joe Lim- right now. Rush Limbaugh has taught us all in audio, radio, podcast, pauses are beautiful. Paul Harvey first. Yeah. Even. Rush is better. I think Paul Harvey took the longer yeah. pauses originally. Paul Harvey would pause so long, I would think, is my radio still working? Is he, has Paul Harvey passed away mid-sentence? And then he'd come right back in. I mean, in the same way that all these that grad students in English classes yeah. are doing tinny impressions of David Foster Wallace still. Uh, uh. Do you feel, though, that what you did with the note, which was... You know, by doing the super insider thing, you made all of us feel like we were insiders. So, like the trick of it, right? The thing that if people are just writing it off or saying that it is is by presenting this thing as I'm only talking to the 500, I'm only talking to these insiders. It created the feeling in all of us that we were insiders too, so that it brought us into a process that beforehand, before that existed, was far and inaccessible to us. Yeah. And suddenly, we felt like we were oh, we could have this conversation. Yeah. How do you think, what do you think like the sort of long tail of that is? I w- Look, there were publications before me that did a similar thing. There have been publications since. I liked doing it. I thought it was, I did a good job doing it with my colleagues, but I don't think it, it was some sort of turning point. It was, I think it was a continuum along the way. Well, what do you think influenced it? Like, so where do you think you were picking? The hotline, picking? national journals, the hotline. Um, was that for a mainstream no, audience? but I don't know. I don't know if the note was for a mainstream audience. I mean, it was for a broader audience than the hotline was for sure. But it do was you still, miss doing it? Do you miss like the, that particular churn at all? Mm, I miss parts of it sometimes, but I don't miss all of it on a regular basis. What parts of it do you miss? Uh, it was very, very satisfying to get up in the morning and hit the sweet spot of both what was happening in that instance and what was likely to happen next for an influential audience right? with, 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 a, with just a ton of voice in my work since then. I don't really think I have as much voice, not because I have no voice, but because everything else is more collaborative. And I did that with a few other people, but it was mostly my voice. 
And you mean you creating the tone and the point of view? Yeah. Again, I did it with other people. I don't want to. No, I don't want to faux controversy when the podcast airs where your publicist Halpern denounces note collaborators. N- nobody knows who you are, so it won't, it's not gonna. That's not gonna uh, happen. We, we we could try it. We could stand and shout that. But I once did. I once did a, a Barbara Walters X Serious XM show. Yeah, and they whipped up a controversy. We're not going to whip up any controversies. Okay, we're certainly not anyway, over that. Along with my colleagues, we had a voice that was distinctive and uh, was influential. And it was, you know, it was just fun to, you know, when I did the night, I did it for ABC News. And it was ahead of its time, not in terms of excellence, but just in terms of literally ahead of its time in a number of ways, including it was not common in the period I did it, which was, I have a bad memory, but I believe 2004, to care within a broadcast network about a text product. Now all right. the networks have websites and they hire writers and, and uh, people like Jake Tapper write for Jeff Zelny write for websites that are affiliated with and co-branded with a broadcast network or a cable channel. But back then, you know, ABC news didn't have any interest in or focus on developing that kind of text product. It was purely text or no pictures in it or graphics or video. So to, get ABC to let me to, for ABC to be proud of and get revenue from a text product was again, ahead of its time, just as a factual matter. That wasn't something done then, but it is done now, of course, widely. How did you convince them to let you do it? Well, it was the, the beginning of the internet. And so it started as an email product and then a web product. Uh, they, they understood the value of influence and, and the sales department figured out they could sell it. And, and make some money off of it. Did you think about this career at the beginning and, and that it would be like a lucrative way of life? Like that it would give you the ability to eat where out wherever you wanted and no. sort of like, like was that no. a part of it to you? Did that just, did you calculate that in no. any way or it just happened to no. be a great byproduct of like doing work that people cared about? Didn't calculate it. It happened to be that. I had no idea when I started and for the first 10 years of my career, never imagined I would be as commercially successful as I've been. I'm really fortunate because I've had to make no more than three that I can think of compromises in my career to be able to do what I love doing and still make a living at it. What do you mean compromises? Well, I'd rather do nothing. That'd be one compromise. What are the other two compromises? I don't believe that, by Um, the way. That I haven't made other compromises? No, that you'd rather do nothing. Oh, I would. No one believes it, but I would rather do nothing. But that that, that is in direct, I think that's in direct opposition to what you said about this duty that you feel. Oh, I've done it long enough. Oh, okay. You've you've done your duty at this point. I'm not saying I'm I'm not, I'm sorry I did what I did and I would never want to do anything, but I'm happy to rest on my laurels now professionally. And what are the other two compromises? Um, You know, I, I... I'd like to cover other things besides politics. I'm interested in other things. I'd like to see how I do. But it just, once this became my brand, it's not so much to be taking a risk to leave, but it just, I, I wouldn't, I don't think, I, I don't think I'd be as uh, well compensated or as sort of prominently influential right away in another story. So I just have chosen to stick with, I've been dancing with the one who brung me doing politics, uh, and when I've tried with various employers to say, hey, let me do other stuff, they're reluctant to do it because they're, my value to them is in the brand of politics. I mean, this is totally fascinating and mind-blowing to me. Right. Be, yeah, because it seems to me you could dictate certain terms or also 
You could do it on your own. Oh, I could, but but I'm lazy, number one. And number two, even trying to do it on my own, like, you know, I worked for I worked for ABC, which was owned by Capital sure. Cities and then by the Walt Disney Company. I worked for Time Warner, worked for Time Magazine, and now for Bloomberg. And those are companies that by compensating me, want to control my brand to some extent. And so if I said to them, hey, I want to go cover, you know, Milan, the fashion shows in Milan, or I want to go cover, you know, a season in the life of the Seattle Supersonics, they'd be like, well, no, because every minute you're doing that, you're not covering the next presidential election. So, I mean, I could have either switched careers or tried to press them to let me do it. But again, I chose not to because... I'd be going to a place where I wasn't able to uh, have as much influence or obviously add as much value. I add value covering politics. I think I could add add value covering other things and be successful commercially and critically, but it's it's not a proven thing. Would you write a but but you could certainly pitch an article or to somebody or you could write a book about any one of those. But the problem is covering presidential elections the way I do it is kind of an all consuming thing. It's not compatible with taking a year off to write a book about the Seattle Supersonics. Just not. And you Though know, you could probably do that in 2017, no, right? The problem with 2017 is even if I'm not writing a book about the presidential campaign, you've got a new president. Or you've got a reelected president who's, you know, trying to rev up their thing. And then you got the midterm elections, and then you're into the presidential. So yeah, is there a, from the from the beginning of the administration through the midterms, is there a five month window? Sure. But writing a book about the year in the yeah, well, what kind of exploration could you really do in five yeah, months? Takes sure, more than a year. So, wait, so those are the five two. Months. What's the third compromise? Um, just uh, I've not uh, I can't, I can't I've not really lived anywhere else since I started huh. working. Yeah, but do you tell yourself that maybe you'll go do it? Yeah, any of these things? Oh, I have that. You know, I mean, I'm not like I cover a lot of people in presidential campaigns who say this is the last time I'm uh-huh. entering, and they all do more, but. Yeah, I may I may stop this time. But, 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 you know, my career, I've enjoyed every cycle. You know, I've covered every campaign since 88. I've enjoyed every presidential cycle, even the ones that are less interesting. And I've never really gotten super close to pulling the plug. But I've thought about it after the last couple. Are you enjoying this one? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm enjoying this one less than people assume I am because I find the fact that a lot of the country doesn't like the candidates and most people I meet are voting against a yeah. candidate rather than four. I don't, I don't love that. Um, I didn't think Hillary Clinton would run because I think she'll have trouble if, even if she wins uniting the country, and I figured she would figure that out. Um, I hope whoever wins can unite the country. Covering Trump has got its pleasant aspects and unpleasant aspects, but I'm enjoying it. I love doing the circus on Showtime Sundays, 8 o'clock. It's a great show. Uh, I love doing the circus. I love, with all due respect, I love Morning Joe. I love Charlie Rose. I love the Today Show. I love Bloomberg politics, so I'm really, it's the first time I've ever started anything, so I'm enjoying the cycle probably as much as I've enjoyed any cycle I've worked on, and I've, you know, I've covered some really fun cycles. This is the second cycle you've covered since Game Change, and, you know, your profile went to, a, I'd say, say from the outside, it seems yeah. like to a different level. It did. No, no question it did. And has that created any problems for you, or has it just made everything easier? It's created some far fewer problems than upside, without a doubt. Um, upsides are great. The downsides are just, you know, sometimes I would say there's a maybe a, maybe just a, a sliver of jealousy from some people, and so I find uncomfortable. Sure, just a sliver, not a lot. Tell the listeners I'm smiling. Not like a full Burr Hamilton uh, kind of thing. 
And then uh, the only other thing is like sometimes it's a little bit annoying to me uh, that people would uh, focus only on the books and assume I'm just always working on the books as opposed to the other stuff I do. But You mean constantly asking you, is there going to be a third book? Yeah. Well, and also like saying to me, hey, this would be great for the book. And I'm like, well, I'm not really here to talk uh, about the book today. I'm here to talk about a TV show that's starting in 10 minutes, you know. Yes. And just sort of, you know, being branded that way. And particularly after the movie that HBO did about game change. But those are small. Both of those things are small. But mostly it's just all great. People are very nice. It's And, you know, books, as you know, books are like different than everything else. As rewarding as doing TV is and magazine writing and newsletters, like books are like a thing that are special in their own way. So you said something a second ago in this run about this that really hit me when you said, you know, you didn't think Hillary would run. And then the reasons you gave were these idealistic reasons. They were pragmatic, meaning the gov- the ability to govern. And then they were also idealistic. Um, and so you do try to retain, how do you balance this skepticism and idealism? Because I've heard you talk about these people, politics, not Hillary in particular or Trump in particular, but it seems like part of you, and it's the part of you that reports a lot, knows that of course they wouldn't think about those things. They only think about the will to... I I am really idealistic. I, I, I mocked by my colleagues and and sometimes others for being so trusting and saying, oh, my God, how can you think the Clintons care anything about public service? And I just... I mean, I they'll just, say that to you, you're yeah, saying. Yeah, they'll say yeah. that to me. I just... I'm very idealistic about people who are in public service and why they're doing it. And until they're let off in handcuffs, I just assume they're in it for good. You see, I don't believe that. It's true. What, but what, does your experience tell you that? Yes, it does. In what way? There are some exceptions, which I won't name. No, sure. But there's some exceptions. But most everyone I've ever covered who runs for public office, you know, they like power. They like influence. They think it's fun. But they're doing it because they really want to make the world a better place under their conception of what that would mean and how they can bring it about. Under their conception of what it would mean and how they could bring it about. So, But does that— but they're trying to make the world a better place. They're not, they're not doing it to get rich— they're not doing it to. Oh, this is so interesting. To aggrandize themselves. You really think they're doing it? So your real belief, like, okay, let's look at someone like John Edwards. Right until it was revealed, you would have believed that he was doing. Oh, I it. still think that's why he was doing it. He just also had like other personal issues, but I still think that's why he was doing it. That's a good example. But and do you not feel that it's um in some way like um there's megalomania tied into it? There is. I mean, you have. I mean, particularly people run for president, you have to be like pretty like high on yourself to do that. But again, I think about how many presidential candidates have I've covered, maybe like 150. I think 140 of them were running because they really wanted to make the world a better place. And they, and thought thought they, they were in it. the unique position yeah. to know or how. Even, or even if they it. weren't sure to say unique, they thought what they had to contribute would add to the dialogue in a way that would make the country more like they wanted so to be. So what do you think is wrong? So, okay. If the press shapes this narrative, which I think the press largely does, create the prism through which we look at this stuff yes indeed so why do we then the the suckers why do we then th- not understand why do we why are we so cynical why are we and and it's not just me right you you could read the polls yourself about what most americans feel about the politicians what's our fundamental misunderstanding like, I think they're all mostly Greg Stilson from the dead zone or a notch away from being Greg Stilson in the dead zone. I mean, I'll attribute at least 62% of it to my spending time with them, the candidates. Right. And getting a sense of what, what, what they're like and why I think they're doing it. 
maybe it's a big con on me, but I fall for it. Huh. So you think it's a, so you think that that's, I was going to ask you this question. You know, Bill Simmons said in the beginning of Grant, before Grantland, when Bill Simmons was first writing at ESPN, he, he always said, I'm never going to be one of these guys hanging around the locker rooms, getting to know the players because it changes, you know, fundamentally will change how I look at them. And I want to keep this outsider fan like, but of course I love Bill, Bill and our friends. He's been great to me, but there's no question that he made a different decision along, uh, along the way. No, dude. No, uh, yeah. He that he along the way. If, if Bill Simmons is a big, um, if that's a big name drop, no. that's my first one. And, okay. and everyone here who listens to this started listening to me uh, when I was working for Bill at Grantland doing it. But oh, so you really know Bill Simmons? Oh yeah, no, oh, I know yeah, Bill. Okay. Let me just okay. say I'm not. Yeah, I'm not just. Okay. I'm not just tossing it around. Okay, like pizza dough. But I would say that I would think that sort of being able to be pals with them or being around them would would hinder you being able to do your job? I mean, it's a trade-off. It's not like I'm friends with any presidential candidates, but I, I think that one of the things that has changed the most over the course of my career to the detriment of Americans' ability to pick the best president is it's harder and harder to get time with the candidates in a way that allows people like me to understand them and explain them. When I started my career, it was much easier to get three-hour car ride with a candidate. Now, right. even the lesser candidates are much more guarded because of Twitter and YouTube and a general suspicion that cooperation will only lead to bad things. And so there's a, um, there's a need to have people who are objective and who aren't going to have Stockholm syndrome and fall in love with the candidates, yep. but spend time with them in a respectful way to get to see what they're like. Um, and I have spent time in my career with both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump that way. I wish I could do more because I think that it's great to let them bring themselves alive through interviews or maybe more casual settings uh, in, in front of the camera. But I don't think there's any substitute for people who are objective and who have decent judgment to spend time with them, get to know them, and try to convey what they're like. Do you not think, though, it could foster in, not you, but in people like in the position you're in, a sense of protectiveness oh, toward in, them? Oh, in, in the weak and unqualified it can. I've seen that with my own eyes. Yeah, you've seen it happen. Yeah, but, but there are people. So how do you retain the vigilance? How do you decide what's worthy of... Because I don't care who wins. I just want the American people to have the best information to make the best choice. So if you knew somebody was in a state that they uh, that where pot wasn't legal and they were a national figure and you knew they were getting high uh, before making a major political speech, would you? how would you decide uh, whether that's well, something... Well, I'd report that. But I, that's not, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about like investigative or or revealing facts. I'm talking about about character personality. And, um, you know, what people are like, yeah, what their, what their what reason, like. why they're running, but what they're like, what their values are, what, what their relationship to the known universe is. That's know? what your show doesn't, I mean, this show, the circus does a really great job on showtime at eight o'clock Sunday night. Uh huh. Oh, suddenly you're not also, bored. Suddenly you're not bored. Also on showtime that, anytime. Uh, no, that show was a great job that. of, uh, of, of that, the, which I credit, the, more, obviously the, I credit McKinnon and Heilman mostly one with. One of the aspirations of the show, for sure. But I've tried to do that my whole career. And like I said, it's become harder to do. Well, what do most of us misunderstand about the job of co covering politics? Like, what do we, what do we get wrong about what it is that y'all do? Well, I don't know that you get wrong about what a lot of people do. What people get wrong about what I do, I'd say, is that people think I'm cynical. And people think, some people think I'm biased one way or the other when I'm not. 
Who do you think does a good job of getting candidates to tell the truth? Who does a good job? Yeah, Tim, who do you Tim think Russell. out there? Well, he's not around anymore. Jake Tapper. You think Jake does a good job of getting people to tell the truth? I do. Is that and so I've asked you this. I've I've some you know you'll do an interview. I'll see you. I mean, Jake is the only one, but I'm a big fan. But of but also I am too a big fan of his. Yeah. Um, but the thing that frustrates me watching my journalist friends when they talk to and not just not you all, all of you yeah. is. It feels like there's this moment in the interviews when they've evaded three different times that you guys move on to the next question. And I feel like a lot of us at home wish you wouldn't. Haven't, haven't you what do we not understand? This? Not with the microphone in front oh. of us. So if you try three times and if it's clear on the third time that the person's A, not going to answer and B, the fact that they haven't answered is clear to the, that's what I wanted to to the viewer, viewer yeah. or listener. Yeah. You got to move on. Otherwise, you're just wasting time. If anything, as compared to most other people. I err on the side of keep going. I've, I've turned a whole interview into one question. But most of the time, it's just not a good use of your time. I mean, if it's, if it's anybody you care about. I mean, I'll give you an example of one that I go yeah. a long way on. Republicans who won't say what they'd like to do with the 12 million or so people here illegally. Yes. Makes me crazy. Like, I, you know, well, first we've got to shut down the border. I say, all right, stipulate the border shut down. Right. I mean, it makes me crazy. You want to have a serious outrage about immigration in America, illegal immigration in America, and you have no position about what to do with the 12 million people here illegally. I've gone endlessly with people, including like, you know, not very famous members of Congress on that because I just I just find it's ridiculous. But after a while, if they're just going to say, Mark, we got to get tough on the border. You know, it's just not interesting. They're not budging. But I agree with you. If somebody says Sec- Secretary Jones, um, uh, you know, why didn't, why did you advocate cutting the budget? And they give, don't answer. And then you're like, Secretary Jones, you didn't answer. It's like annoying if the person just moves on, ask once and moves on. Or you say, Secretary Jones, uh, you know, why did you, why did you steal that, that, uh, hot chocolate? Well, America needs a new kind but, of leadership. Well, I guess my question I mean, is, so McConnell you know, says, like in McConnell's book, yeah. and he says, I'll answer the same way. I won't deviate. Uh, right. Now, I look at Mitch McConnell, and to me, he is Greg Stilson, right? To me, that's a guy who's not in as from an out from the outside watching the coverage closely. I can't find the person there who's actually acting in somebody's interests or really thinks about his constituents. I think he's thinking about the party and 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 himself. And so, I don't. If you know you're going to get talking points from someone like that, why, as a journalist, do you book him, talk to him? Well, Why, if, if everybody I mean, refused to, yeah. wouldn't then there, that change? There are certain people I will not book on my shows who get booked on tons of shows right. for that reason. It's just not interesting to me to book someone like that. But somebody like McConnell, first of all, occasionally he does say interesting things. And second of all, you know, he's the leader. He's the Senate leader. I don't think you can just completely ignore him given his position in the world. But his interviews more often than not aren't maybe the most interesting ever. If you could get John Roberts to sit for an interview, what would you want to ask him? You mean like one question? No, if you could like, what would you be interested in talking to him about? Sure, one uh, question, but what would you be interested, I'm interested in talking in, to him I'm about? interested in how the conservatives and the liberals on the court say they're so principled, and yet they often vote in a totally result-oriented way on some cases. And I'm interested in asking the conservatives how they can be for the 10th Amendment, and yet um, if Delaware said, you know, gay people can't ride public transportation— they would say, well, that's got to be struck down. Why isn't that left the people of Delaware? So I'm really interested in the 10th Amendment. 
because you feel that it should be struck down or you want to know what the... I feel that they're unprincipled. They're for federal intervention when some mythical line is crossed. And you want to understand where that line is. Well, the so line, what do you really think is at play there? That they're result oriented, just like the liberals. And you know are. that the fact that you, I was going to say the fact that you went right to that is why people think that you're fundamentally conservative. Well, no, I'm, I, I don't think I don't think that would argue in that direction. Right, uh, my, uh, Republic, argue, uh, my yeah. argue, my example would argue in the other direction. But like I said, I'd have comparable questions for the liberals. They're result oriented. I mean, the most obvious thing is Bush v. Gore. You know, the, yes. the conservatives said. Oh, we should, Washington sure. should intervene. The liberals said, let the state decide. Opposite of their normal position. Because they're result-oriented. They're not result-oriented in every case. But again, I think that the the, the conservatives have a, a high burden to explain why they think it's okay to for Washington to say, you can't discriminate based on race. But it's not okay for Washington to say, you can't discriminate based on sexual orientation. Oh, sure. Yeah. So that's what I asked John Roberts. Yeah. We should get him. And do you think it's fair that they don't sit for interviews? The justices? I, I'm of two minds about this. You know, they're co-equal branch, allegedly. We're in an age of accountability. Uh, I get that. I get that side of it. But on the other hand, I don't just, I agree with the justice. If there were cameras in the courtroom, it would change the way that things work. I think justices need a measure of insulation from sort of like the popular will. So I could argue that one either way. I'm, I'm fine with the status quo, but I can see why people agitate for change. And, and normally I'm pretty opinionated and decisive, but on that one, I... You mean you see both sides of that I one? I see both sides of that one, and I, and, I'm, and I am certain, I shouldn't say I'm certain, I'm pretty confident that I will never tip to one direction because I think, I think that the two sides have really fundamentally strong arguments for their cases. All right, let's uh, end on I'm this. Play the, and how long have we been Do going you for? think... The- Are we early at an hour? Just I'm about, just, aren't we? Just, just warming up. Just about. Do we, the people, yeah. do you think, uh, overweight the role and influence of the president? Right? I was listening the other day to Stephen Dubner talk about this, and I'm wondering where you come down on it. Do you think that the job is largely ceremonial? Do you think, other than appointing a Supreme Court justice, it's as important? Them, don't appoint them. But yeah. Thanks for that. I'm winking. Do is I the, think president the president is yeah. the yeah do you think yeah. we overweight meaning we give them too much power or we overstate we, we overstate no, the importance no i mean during the cold war the president was all powerful and the branches weren't co-equal and then we had the interregnum interregnum between the cold war and 9-11 where there was some question about the primacy of the president and bill clinton compounded that by making some personal mistakes Post 9-11, it's not restored all the way back in part because we've had divided government. But no, I think the president is in news coverage and agenda setting in uh, culturally in terms of the way government, the culture of government interacts with the wider, broader culture. No, I think the president's still damn influential. Not as influential as during the Cold War, but still more than first among equals. I I just want to revisit so I understand this John Roberts question. Yeah. Because ultimately the Supreme Court decided gay marriage was okay that a uh, state couldn't have a, a law saying uh, no gay marriage yeah but that didn't get nine votes right and you're saying why didn't it get nine votes i just don't understand how, how they vote against how they vote against that i just i just understand what the principle is it says on some things we think it's okay for washington to tell a florist in texas you have to have a ramp for someone with a wheelchair to use your services not the floor says, 
you know what? I'll do without the business of the people in the wheelchairs. Why is it okay for Washington to order them to do that? But not okay for Washington to order them to say, you can't discriminate against gay people. And which do you think? I just want consistency. Out of whom? Both sides. Right. So you think. You believe in the 10th Amendment or don't you? So, I mean, to me, it feels like you're, or I wonder, do you think that a, a sort of utopian version of libertarianism is the right way to go? No. I mean, I don't know what that means, a utopian version. Of I mean, like the world, like if you were remaking it now and in... Only if you could change human nature. That's the utopian part. Oh. That's the utopian part. Well, if you part. could change human nature, I'd put root beer in the water fountains. I can't think of a better way to end this uh, absurd... I could, I could have flute solo, but we're not getting that, apparently. I think that... Uh, I think you help tell the story of the presidential election. You're Theodore White in an age of uh, where Theodore White could do give a minute-by-minute accounting. And I think that understanding the way you look at the politicians is as important as the politicians themselves. I know. Because you are the one, you are the one telling us what they're like every day. I know we're over. When you're not putting up pictures of donuts, which is really a waste of your journalism integrity. I need, I I know we're over, but I need to tell the the listeners three things. Go. One is. The listener, by the way. One is. The listener who's still with us. The temperature in this room. Fantastic. Oh, good. Love it in here. I would do all my shows from in here. Great. It's like the Ed Sullivan Theater. Two is, in this light, you look like Billy Joel. I'm not saying you look like Billy Joel objectively, but in this light, uh-huh. sing us a song. Three. Three, I uh, just want to express my gratitude to you for hosting me. Mark Halperin, thank you. Thanks for being here, dude. My um, pleasure. Great to be on. I love... Long-time uh, listener, first-time guest. Who's going to be president of the United States of America? Whoever the American people think. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Halperin.